uh, Daniel, thanks for the band for leading us in worship. We're really blessed in this church to have some fantastic musicians and people who can sing and lead us in, in worship before God. And uh, it's just great and it's a real privilege, isn't it, to be able to do that and to have that and just to be blessed in that way as a church. And so we should give thanks to God for that. When I was about 17, which is uh, longer ago than I care to remember, I flew out to America for a few weeks to stay with some friends. And when I checked in, I asked at the check-in desk if I could have a seat at the front of the section. If you've been on a big 747 where there's various fire exits, there's uh, no chairs there. So when you sit at the front of that section, you've got a nice uh, kind of bit of leg room. You're not kind of crammed in. So I got that. The downside of that is that the seat obviously doesn't have, you don't have a seat in front of you. So, when, so there's no table to fold down to put your drink and your peanuts or your pretzels or whatever else you get on your aircraft. Um, anyway, they did that and I got my uh, table and the table instead comes out of the arm and flips over. So it's a really rickety thing, really, really fragile and just not very uh, strong at all. Well, after we'd kind of got up to a, a cruising altitude and the uh, hostess had come round and, and the, the seatbelts were off, so I got my obligatory Coke and pretzels and I'm sat there munching away with a nice uh, thing of Coke just full on the little tray right in front of me. And as I was shuffling around, I shuffled a little bit too much, not the tray, not the Coke, and the Coke just ended up in a nice area all around here. Um, so there I was at the beginning of the flight, eight hours in this flight to go to America, and I was soaked through the skin with horrible, wet, sticky Coke. Well, I, you know, I can't change. I can't go into the hold and get my clothes out of my suitcase. You know, I'm going to have to sit here like this. And the toilet was just there, so I thought, I'll go into the toilet, see if I can kind of get as much of it out of my trousers as possible. Went into the toilet, got some, got some uh, tissues and things and uh, napkins and kind of dried off as much as I could. But when I looked down, it still didn't look good. Just a big wet patch all the way around here. And I came out of the uh, toilet at the front of a whole cabin section. And there is a hundred people sat in their chairs and they see a young, poor 17-year-old lad coming out of a cabin with this... didn't look good. And you could just see the pity on the eyes of people sat in, in the cabin that I was in. Poor lad, so young to be suffering such a condition. And I had to sit just in the shame. And every time I got up in those seven hours of flights, everyone would look, oh, that's the, that's the boy, that's him there. Just awful experience, standing out like a sore thumb, sticking out like a sore thumb, completely different to everybody else in that uh, plane. And, and I kind of felt a little bit like this, you know, where you, you stick out like a sore thumb, you're different to everybody else, and everybody's kind of looking at you and knows you're a little bit different and for all sorts of different reasons. And, you know, none of us like to stand out, do we? None of us, if we're in a room of people and I said, put your hand up, you know, nobody really likes to put their hand up. Nobody likes to stand out. We like to fit in with those around us. If you read Genesis chapters 5 to 9, and we're working our way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, looking at the, um, the true accounts, the, the, the true literal accounts of how God created the world, and how um, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and then today how God flooded and destroyed the world. If you read Genesis 5 to 9, Noah does just that. He sticks out like a sore thumb. He is completely different to everybody else around him. And there's no mistaking him he sticks out like this sore thumb. Genesis 6 tells us that Noah was the only person in the whole world who was seeking to obey God. Now, obviously, there wasn't the population there is today in the world, but nevertheless, amongst probably uh, several million people, Noah was the only person, the Bible says, who was seeking to obey God. He was the only blameless person in the world at that time. 
Noah was different to the people around him. He was different to everybody else around him. He was sticking out like a sore thumb. And he was different in two ways, which we're going to look at this morning. So let's read from Genesis. Where's my Bible gone? Here we go. Genesis chapter 6. We're not going to read all of uh, Genesis 5 to 9. That would take the whole morning up. But we are going to read an important part from Genesis 6. And we're going to read from uh, verses 5 to 22. So Genesis chapter 6, 5 to 22. If you haven't got a Bible, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it to, uh, to you. Now you have to just forget everything you've ever thought about Noah. Because everything you've ever thought about Noah which we're going to look at later, is out of storybooks, probably isn't true, a little ark with a Jurassic and his head out the top. Forget that. This is a very, very different thing. Let's go to the Bible rather than what uh, perhaps we've grown up with, the kind of fairy story idea. This is true. This is real. This is God's word. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. It's a great commendation, isn't it, in the Bible. Noah had a different relationship With God, he was different to the people around him. He stood out like a sore thumb. And the first way that Noah was different was that he had this relationship with God. Hebrews 11 verse 7, speaking about Noah, says that he became one of those who are made right with God through faith. Noah was one of those who are made right with God through faith. Noah has placed his faith in God. And he was trusting in God to provide the solution for his sins. Noah knew that he was a sinner. He knew that his life was full of wrong things, that that was offensive to God. And so Noah was trusting God to deal with that sin because he knew that he couldn't have a relationship with God because of all the junk and the rubbish in his lives, just like we experience today. And so Noah, we look back to the cross. We've sung at the cross, at the cross. And we look back, remembering and looking back to what Jesus did on the cross where he was punished for our sins for all our foul-ups, for all our mess-ups, for all the stuff that we regret and wish we hadn't done and continue to so often do. And we look back in faith 
and we put our faith and trust in the fact that Jesus was punished there on the cross by his Father, by God, for us. So Jesus took the punishment, the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Noah looked forward. This would be two and a half thousand years or so after Noah was alive that Jesus would die on the cross. And so Noah, knowing the promise that God had already given, that he would deal with sin and make a way back to God for himself, Noah put his faith in that sacrifice in the future. We look back, Noah looked forward. And as a result of that, he was made right with God. Genesis 6 verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now when we read that Noah was righteous and blameless, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. Okay, we, we read later on that Noah let God down, Noah sinned. The Bible says that there's nobody righteous, nobody is right with God in their own strength. We are all sinners, the Bible says. But it does mean that God treated him as though he was sinless, as though he was perfect. Because of the faith that Noah had put in Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus would come and die on the cross, and in the same way for us today, because we put our faith looking back in what Jesus has done on the cross, because of that faith that Noah had placed in God and in his promised son, God viewed Noah as being perfect, as being righteous, as being right with himself. And that's what happens when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. When we come to the cross, when we come realising that we're morally bankrupt, that we have nothing that we can bring to God, we have nothing that we can contribute to our relationship with God or to make a relationship with God. We come and we come and we put our trust in what Jesus did, that he paid the price, that he made it possible for us to come back to have a relationship with God. Noah looked forward and he was made right with God. And we look back and if we've done that, if we've taken that step in our lives, we are right with God, which is a wonderful thing, which is why we've been worshipping God this morning. So God viewed Noah as being righteous, as being perfect, as blameless because of Jesus. The second way that Noah was different was, as Genesis 6 verse 9 says, that he walked with God. And that doesn't mean that Noah walked around with God in some kind of physical sense. It's a phrase which speaks to us of the harmony and the unity and the closeness of Noah's life with God. It simply means that he lived his, his life the way that God wanted him to. He lived his life in close harmony with God, as if God was right there by his side walking with him. And you know, if you put your faith in Christ, if you're a Jesus follower, if you follow Jesus day by day, then one of the things that God wants you to do and me to do is to walk with him. To live in close harmony with Jesus. To walk in close harmony with him day by day. And you know, when you walk with somebody, that inevitably means you spend time with them, doesn't it? You can't walk with somebody, you can't go somewhere with someone on a walk without spending time with them. That's, that's, that's not possible. And we see this in the life of Jesus. That he walked with God, and that meant spending time with God. We, we see this as we read, and the verse is going to come up there on the screen for you, that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left his house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus knew that he needed to spend time with his Father, with God the Father. And Jesus is the greatest example of all of walking with God. And Jesus made time to spend with God. So take your outline, it's on your chair if you want to use that. There's things for you to fill in if you, want, if you find that helpful. If not, that's fine. Um, but there's, there's, there's space there for you to fill things in. The first point this morning is that walking with God means spending time with God. If we're going to walk with God, if we're going to be like Noah, if we're going to be more importantly like Jesus, then we need to spend time with God. And that means carving time out of our day and, and, and sacrificing time and making time to be with God. Spending time with God. Walking with God means spending time with Him. And you know, when you walk with somebody, it's public, isn't it? Everybody else can see it. 
If Daniel and I go for a walk down the street, other people can see that we're walking together, we're spending time together, but it's also a public act. We're not ashamed of the fact that we're with each other, or if you're walking with someone, people can see that. It's public. And you know, the Bible says about our relationship with Jesus, if we're followers of Jesus, that needs to be public. The Bible says, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Testify is a word that we use about going into court, isn't it? And when we publicly, in front of lots of witnesses, we say what we've seen. And so the Bible is teaching us that if we're following Jesus, we need to not be afraid to testify, to publicly declare our faith. So secondly, walking with God means that my faith should be visible. Write that in. My faith should be visible to those around me. If I have a faith in Jesus, if I'm here this morning uh, proclaiming my faith in Jesus, then those in my street, those in my family, those in my office should know too that I love Jesus. This shouldn't be something that we keep to church on a Sunday. People should be able to tell by the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we talk, that we have a relationship with God, that we're walking with Jesus day by day. It should be visible. It should be public. And when you walk with someone, it's helpful, isn't it, if you walk at the same pace. When I was a kid, my brother um, never really liked me, bless him, and um, we, we, we do phone each other occasionally these days, but uh, you know, I was the little... Uh, spoilt little brother and he was seven years older than me and when it, it, I used to go into town sometimes with him on a Saturday and my parents would say take Andrew with you and oh, he used to have to go down to town and I would wander around and he would walk so fast so ridiculously fast and I'd be running along almost running trying to keep up with him if you're walking with somebody and you want to be with them you walk together don't you you walk in the same pace you walk you keep in step with each other doesn't make any sense to be walking you're not walking with someone if they're ahead of you and somebody else is behind It's helpful to walk in the same pace, to keep in step. And the Bible says this, since we live by the Spirit, since through trusting in Jesus, God's Spirit comes to live within us, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, the Bible says. And so for us to walk with God means that we must keep in step with the Spirit. And and that means that we keep in step with His commands, with His promptings, with that you know, that, 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 that still small voice that we hear as, as the Bible comes alive to us, as we're in different situations, that we keep in step with the way God wants us to live. So, write this down. Walking with God means doing things God's way. It means in all those different situations that we find ourselves in, at work, at school, in, at, at, at home, in our street, in our neighbourhood, that we walk the way God would want us to walk. We, we do things God's way. We keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And as you're walking with God, then you will notice that you're different. See, growing uh, in our Christian faith involves two things. It involves us taking steps, doing things. It means us carving out time to pray, to, to, to making sure we witness to friends and so on. But also, that the very act of spending time with Jesus means that almost subconsciously, without our realising it, we change. We begin to change as we spend time with Jesus. They say of couples, husband and wife couples, that they begin to become like each other the older they get. Now, that may or may not fill you with uh, you know, dread, or, or, or I'm not sure. But um, certainly when it comes to Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, we become more like him. The Bible says, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. Not that we look physically like Jesus, no one knows what Jesus looks look like, but that in his character, in the way that he, Jesus behaved, in his actions, we become more like God. As we walk with God, then we should become more and more like Jesus. So old things will go from our life. Some of this is about us making a conscious choice to get rid of stuff, but also as the more time we spend with Jesus, the more these things will begin to be natural for us. 
So old habits will go, old practices, old language, old behaviour. New things will come into our life. So write this down. Walking with God means that I become more like Jesus. Walking with God means that I become more like Jesus. And as we walk with God, our lives then will be marked by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by gentleness and self-control. Those nine characteristics, attributes, are what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the product, the result, the outworking of the Holy Spirit living in us. And if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and if we're keeping in step with him day by day, that's our business to make sure we keep in step. If we're doing that, we will be changed. And we become more and more like Jesus. And just like Noah, when we have that right relationship with God, when we've experienced the undeserved, outrageous grace of God, then we will begin to walk with him. And as we walk with him, we will become more like him. And Noah walked with God. It's a fantastic expression, isn't it? Wouldn't it be fantastic if on your tombstone, on your gravestone, it could be said, you know, on my tombstone, Andy walked with God. Andy walked with God. That was his heartbeat. That was his passion. I hope that is true of me. I hope that will be true of me. It's not just Noah that that can be true of. That can be true of all of us. This person walked with God. This person walked with God. Noah knew God. There were benefits of walking with God. And as we walk with somebody, we get to know them, don't we? And, and Noah knew God. When Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in the New Testament, several thousand years later, he wrote these words, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. See, walking with God enables us to know God, to know about him, to know his character, to know the promises he's made to us. As Daniel was sharing this morning, we trust God because we know he's trustworthy. We don't trust people that we don't know. And it's only over time that we trust one another because we spend time together and we build a relationship and we know that this person is reliable in this kind of situation. If you needed to fly to the USA, I I flew over there, I I shared that story earlier about a trip to America. If you were going to go to America this week and uh, you you looked around and you saw that British Airways was offering you a flight to, uh, to the USA in a 747, And then somebody else said, you know what, I've just got a hang glider, it's fantastic, it's brand new, I've never flown it before, but why don't you get on with me and I'll take you there. Now who are you going to choose? There are other airlines other than BA available, of course, but but, but who would you choose? British Airways, who's got a a, a 50, 60 year track record of flying people around the world, deliver several thousand people to America every day in aircraft that have been flying and tested beyond every test imaginable, or would you trust somebody who pitches up with a hang glider who's never done it before? It's, It's obvious, isn't it? And it's like that with God. When we get to know him, when we see what he's done in history as we read the Bible, when we see what he's done in other people's lives, and when we, in our own experience, can look back and say, God was with me there. I trusted God in that situation, and he was with me, and he took me through that dark place and that dark time. And and, and much more than that, God has saved me and has taken my sin away and made me right with him. When we get to know God, when we know him more and more by walking with him, then we can trust him with our lives, can't we? And when we go into those dark places, today's talk is entitled um, Trusting God Even When It Makes No Sense, Following God When It Makes No Sense To. And there are times when, in your life and in my life, it seems to make no sense what God's calling us to do. And the situations we're in make no sense. And for Noah, that's what life was about, wasn't it? A situation which made no sense whatsoever. 
But because we walk with God, because we get to know God, then we can trust God. So write this down. If we want to trust God with our lives, we need to get to know him. The reason that Emma trusted Daniel with her life this morning was because she knows him. She knows him since the day she was born. He has been there. And the day that we were reborn, if we've trusted in Jesus, the Bible talks about being born again, becoming a new person. From that moment, God is our Father. And as we get to know him and as we see him and his his record, if you like, his reliability, we know that we can trust him. But to do that, we need to spend time with God. We need to get into the Word of God, the Bible, study it, find out what the Bible says is true about God and choose to believe the truth even when it seems to make no sense. And as we walk with God, when we get to know him, and, and out of that knowledge, it gives us the faith to trust him, to take us into those difficult situations, those situations which seem perplexing and sometimes scary. God gives us that faith as we trust him, because we've got to know him, to go into unknown territory, just like Noah. Now, I guess Noah must have felt pretty isolated. I mean, he was the only one, the Bible says, who was following God. He was walking with God and he was facing the unknown. It's, it's a lonely life, isn't it, when you're the only person in your class at school who trusts in Jesus. It's a lonely life when you're the only person in the office who has a faith in God. When everybody else has got no interest in Jesus, no interest in God, and, and maybe not just no interest, but it's openly hostile to the, the concept of Jesus, the concept of our Christian faith. It's, it's a lonely life when we're the only family member who believes in Jesus and who loves Jesus. And I guess most of us here today are in that position. Maybe not everybody, but most of us, for a good part of your day, for a good part of your day every day, you're the only one around you who's following God. You're the only one around you who's, who's walking daily with Jesus. And you stick out like a sore thumb, or you should do, if you're really being true to Jesus. Sticking out like a sore thumb, going against the flow, living a life that is different. Noah knew what that was like. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says that Noah preached about being right with God. But he did that for 120 years, the Bible says. Noah preached about getting right with God for 120 years. It's crazy, isn't it? He was so good at preaching that not a single person listened to him, not one. They may have heard him, but nobody responded to what he was saying. And I can identify with Noah on that, preaching and everybody faces out and switches off. Everybody wanted to do what they wanted to do. And being right with God, so to speak, clearly didn't feature high on anybody's agenda in, in Noah's day. He was preaching for 120 years, not one response. Nobody took any notice of him. The Bible doesn't tell us, but there's a good chance, I would imagine, that he was ridiculed and mocked and uh, excluded and, and his life became difficult. Yet despite this, despite this, Noah was faithful to his calling. He discovered what it was like to receive God's grace. God's grace simply means God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. And when God forgives our sins and makes us right with himself and gives us eternal life and a relationship with himself, that's God being gracious, God's grace. And Noah had discovered that. And he knew what it was to be right with God through faith and he wanted other people to know about it as well. And today I just want to encourage you to keep going, to keep talking to other people about being right with God. To keep telling others about the fact that they can get right with God. But though they may have blown it, because the Bible says we've all sinned, but though we've blown it and messed up and fouled up and despite our best efforts, we can never get right with God on our own. But through Jesus, we can have that relationship with God. I want to encourage you to keep doing that, keep telling people, keep plugging away. 
Noah did it for 120 years and not one person responded positively to how he lived or what he said. Now please don't get me wrong, God does want people to respond when we tell others about him. People responding to you, to me and to the message of the good news about Jesus does matter to God, clearly it does. The Bible says God isn't willing that anyone should perish. But here's the deal, God wants you and me to be faithful faithful to the call upon our life. And that may mean we don't see any spectacular results. We don't see wonderful things happening around us. God wants us to be faithful to the call even when things don't pan out the way that we thought or hoped that they might do. And you might feel alone and isolated and you may often feel rejected by those around you who don't love Jesus, who perhaps are even openly hostile to the concept of Jesus. But remember that God is with you and that God has called you to be faithful to him, to walk with him, and to tell others about getting right with God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. The Christian life is likened on numerous occasions to being like a race. Now, I couldn't probably run down the end of the street before I collapsed, but knowing that there was, something, that there was somebody there that, that was kind of cheering me along would help, wouldn't it? And the Bible says Jesus is there and he's with us. He's promised never to go away, never to forsake us or leave us. And so we fix our eyes on him as we go through life. And and doing that gives us the perseverance to keep going. So this morning, write this down. If we want to persevere and keep going, if we want to persevere and keep going, then we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to take that daily choice to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And that's about coming every day, carving time out of our day, no matter how hectic our days may be, if at all possible, to come. And even if it's just for five minutes, just by focusing, refocusing, stopping, you know, just taking time out, getting alone with God, reading some of the Bible, and praying, and just bringing our lives to God, connecting with Him in worship, and in prayer, and in thanksgiving. It'd be fantastic if you do that for half an hour, but even if it's just for a few minutes, just to stop, and reconnect with God and fix our eyes on Him so that He is the one we're focusing on as we go into life. Now alongside Noah's call to preach about being right with God, Noah had another task, which is the task he's actually more famous for, which was just to build this huge, enormous, phenomenally enormous barge. Forget the picture that you've seen, absolute nonsense. God told Noah to build this enormous construction of wood and it would take Noah 120 years to complete it. If you're wondering about the age of Noah and some of the other ages you read, well, come and talk to me about that afterwards. Be, like, be delighted too. But that was because the, the, the whole situation after the flood had completely and utterly changed. And as, uh, as people's genes, uh, as, as, as there was only this uh, small family left, then the effect of genetic mutation and so on uh, brought the ages down rapidly. And within a few years of the flood, the age... Uh, time of, of mankind was down to about 70 years. But Noah spent 120 years completing this. And nothing like this had ever been seen before. Noah didn't live by the sea, he'd probably never even seen the sea. And yet God commanded him to build a barge that was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. That's a full-size replica. It may or may not have looked exactly like that, but that gives you something of the scale. That's a full-size replica in Holland that you can go and visit. Noah was called to do something that for people in his day and people today would seem utterly bonkers and utterly crazy. And you can understand why people around him might have thought that Noah had lost the plot. 
This was an immense, massive, gigantic, out-of-this-world project. There was no precedent. There was nothing similar. And this really was Noah heading into the realm of complete lunacy. But listen to what the Bible says about Noah. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah believed in God. Noah walked with God, so Noah trusted in God. And he had faith in God. And so out of that knowledge, trust and faith, Noah did what God told him to do. Hebrews 11, verse 7, talking about Noah, says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in other words, the flood, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. You know, the faith that Noah had and the faith that we have today if we're trusting in Jesus is not in an idol, it's not in some kind of fairy tale or superstition. Our faith is built on nothing less than God, upon the solid rock. It's not something that we, you know, kind of fluctuates and changes. Our faith is built on the certainty of the Almighty God. And our faith in the Almighty God enables us to both attempt and achieve the impossible. Maybe today that God is calling you to do what seems impossible. I don't know what God's saying to you. I don't know what goes on in your life. But it may be today that God is calling you to step out or to, or to continue doing what to you seems impossible and what perhaps to the world around you seems like lunacy. The call of God on our lives is like Noah to fix our eyes on Jesus, to trust God with our lives even when that means doing things that seem crazy to other people. The Bible says that we, we, we live by faith, not by sight. We don't live our faith based on what is the physical reality. We have a faith in God which transcends what we see. Now, maybe some of you today are here as skeptics and, and this whole God thing and the whole Bible thing is still a bit much for you to buy into. That's fine. If you want to chat about that further with me afterwards or, or any time, I'd be delighted to, to meet with you, to chat with you, to discuss that. But maybe even as a Christian here today, you, you know, you're sitting, you're buying into the lessons that we're learning, the practical lessons of what that looks like in our life to trust in God, but you're thinking, yeah, but he didn't really build an ark, did he? There wasn't really this, this flood that, that destroyed the whole world. Isn't that just a story? Isn't Genesis meant to be just kind of symbolic? Isn't it just a kind of myth that we can learn lessons from? No, utterly not, completely not. See, when you mention Noah's Ark, most people instantly think of this kind of image. And, and you know, children's Bibles are fantastic, but they've done loads of violence to the reality and the truth of what the Bible actually teaches. That is not what the Ark looked like. Quite naturally, people, even Christians, are inclined to, to dismiss the story as a myth. After all, how on earth would God or, or would Noah get all the animals in, a work, in the world into a contraption like that? Well, clearly he couldn't, and he wouldn't. Let's slow the myth, shall we, just briefly. What does the Bible actually say about the flood or about the ark? And I, and I can chat with you about this in much greater detail if you want to afterwards. A number of resources, DVDs and books and what have you, which you're welcome to, to borrow. But just briefly, firstly, Genesis 7:11 tells us that that there were vast amounts of water that not only came down in rain, but, but more importantly, there were vast amounts of water that were under the earth that were released, and along with the heavy rainfall, the whole earth was flooded. The huge mountains that currently exist didn't exist then. There may have been some mountains, but the massive mountains that we see around the world have been formed by cataclysmic change and, and, and terrible destruction and absolute outpouring of, of, of great changes in the world, which was caused by the flood. And as those various plates around the earth, as the pressures and the, and the destructive force of a flood that was, was universal or, or, or was worldwide, it forced those mountains up and, and, and that was one of the results that we see. If you go to the top of Mount Everest, I've never been, never going to go, 
but you will find marine limestone at the top of Mount Everest with fossils of creatures that live at the bottom of the sea. At some point in history, before the flood, that mountain was on the bottom. And as a result of the flood, those mountains have been pushed up. When the flood came, the whole earth was covered in water. This wasn't some kind of regional flood. That idea makes a nonsense of the text and of the scientific evidence. But what about the ark itself? Well, again, the Bible says it was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, and it had three stories. It was the length of one and a half football pitches. And it wasn't until 1858 that a vessel that had ever been built that was larger than this. South Korean naval, and you can, you can check all this out, this is all factual. South Korean naval architects have confirmed that a barge with the ark's dimensions would be almost impossible to capsize. Yet when Genesis was written by Moses in about 1440 BC, the world knew nothing about, shi- uh, about scientific ship design. And certainly when Noah was building the ark, he had no concept, and couldn't have had any concept, that naval architects could have today with all, com- all the computerized uh, assistance that they have. It had a capacity of 1,400,000 square feet, which could hold 522 modern rail or road haulage containers. This was enormous. It was massive. 1,400,000 feet, 522 shipping containers. The ark had the capacity to hold 102,000 sheep-sized animals. Now, this has been proved only 11% of the world's animals are actually larger than a sheep. Very few of the world's animals. Only 11% of the world's animals are larger than a sheep. And even those could be taken on board when they were young, before they'd reached that size. Don't forget, too, that the Bible doesn't say that Noah took every different kind of breed of dog. He would have only had to take two of their kind. That's what, that's what Genesis says. Two dogs, two cats. He wouldn't have needed to take every different kind of breed. Science has proved that every dog in the world has descended from just two dogs, a female and a male dog, just as it's proved that with a man and woman. People wonder about the dinosaurs. Were dinosaurs on the ark? Well, of course they were. The Bible says God created everything. And most dinosaurs, actually, despite all the stuff we see and and read in in the media and so on, most dinosaurs actually were very small. Again, most of them smaller than a sheep. There were some of the large, enormous ones that we, that we see the fossils of in various museums. But even those large, enormous dinosaurs would have been taken on as young when they were much, much smaller. The biggest dinosaur egg is about so big. So even as a young, they would have still been easily fitted onto this vessel that was huge and enormous. Is there evidence of a flood? You bet there is. Layers upon layers of dead things in rapidly laid down layers of rock. They're called fossils. The fossil record is not a record of millions of years of layers slowly being down. It is the record and the result of a sudden and catastrophic event which trapped many, many creatures in mud and compressed them down in a very rapidly short space of time. Now, 95% of fossils are shellfish. Most of these are at the bottom of the fossil layers and the most common type of creatures in the fossil record are amphibians. Sorry, the, the second most common type are amphibians. And at the top of the fossil layers, you get land animals, just as you would expect in a sudden global uh, sudden flood. There are some animals, this is, this is phenomenal, there are some animals fossilized giving birth. Some animals fossilized giving birth. I've got a picture here for you. Some animals fossilized in the state of giving birth and it's been highlighted there for you. That's an ichthyosaurus fossilized giving birth. Now think about it. If an animal dies, if I die here and you don't bury me and I just lie on the floor, in 10 million years there's nothing left. Nothing. Okay, and the layers are... The time that it would take for layers to sort of slowly accumulate, you know, and worm cast and so on, 
I would be long gone before any, it would be possible for all those layers to build up around me. The only way that that was trapped was by something sudden trapping it in the process of giving birth. There are many fossils fossilized with food in their mouths, eating something rapid, something sudden, trapped them in that position and trapped them very suddenly. It's a great example, and there's quite a few of these, great example of fossilized tree trunks that go right through layers of rock. Now, these layers of rock, according to evolutionary scientists, are meant to have taken millions of years to lay up, and yet those trees, well, after they died, after a few hundred years, would just rot and disappear within a very short space of time. They wouldn't still be there after millions of years while the, 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 the layers sub- slowly built up. Something rapid happened, something very quick. These are examples of evidence of a sudden and dramatic event which trapped creatures and these trees in layers of mud. There's loads more examples I could, we could spend hours doing this, but I'm just trying to pick a few things just to make you think a little bit this morning. Something happened which trapped these creatures, trapped these trees under layers of mud which under extreme weight and pressure became rock. In other words, the biblical flood. The biblical flood would have been totally and utterly destructive. It would have utterly transformed the whole planet leaving a very, very different world after the flood. And there's a wealth of scientific evidence which supports the biblical flood and that Genesis 1 to 11 is, 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 is literal, it's not symbolic, it's not myth. It's, it, it, this is real, literal fact. And there's not one thing which disproves it. quite happy to enter into debate with you over this because the, the Bible stands up and the science stands up totally. Jesus taught that Noah was a real man and the flood was a literal event covering the whole earth just as Genesis presents it, in which only eight people were saved. Look at what Jesus says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about himself there when he comes again. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now Jesus was making these comments in the context of teaching about his second coming. So if we don't believe in a literal Noah, a literal flood, then we have to reject a literal second coming because the two things Jesus ties together. The The Apostle Peter believed and taught that Noah was real, the flood was real, and in both of his New Testament books he writes extensively on the subject. Peter, in one place, tellingly again, links the flood to the second coming. Look at what he says. You must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Why do so many Christians reject or have trouble with the first 11 chapters of Genesis? It's because we're bombarded with the constant bombardment from the media and from our education system which doesn't want a God in the world and rejects God and wants us to believe that with a, with a product of slime over billions of years going from a single cell organism, which is impossible by the way, to a complex, highly, highly complex like organism or, or, or person like you and I. The Bible says God made you and I. He spoke and we came into being and we're made in his image and we're unique and special and God loves you and Jesus died for you. Can I plead with you this morning? Don't be intimidated by our education system. Nothing is neutral. Everybody comes at these things with a preconceived ideas or a worldview. 
The Bible is completely scientifically accurate and you can rely on it. And if you want to debate this with me further, I'll be delighted to do it with you afterwards. Scientists have not proved evolution. Actually, the opposite is true. I've got a great book which you'd be welcome to borrow, The Achilles Heels of Evolution, also a DVD that goes with it, written by 12 PhD scientists who are leading professors and leading doctorates in their field in leading universities around the world, teaching a young earth creation, a literal trans- uh, understanding of Genesis. We did not evolve from slime over millions of years. This world did not start with a big bang. God spoke and the world came into being. If you want to know more about creation, the flood and the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then I'd really encourage you to check out two websites, answersingenesis.org, they're on the screen, also on your outline, answersingenesis.org and creation.com. And there's every possible subject covered there and you can stick in stuff into the search engine and it will bring up papers written by eminent scientists on these kind of issues. So back we go to Noah. A man who followed God even when it didn't make any sense. Yet Noah did it and he obeyed God. Did Noah ever doubt? Did he ever wonder if God had got it wrong when the Bible doesn't say but I suspect he did. For 120 years he preached and he built. I think most preachers or builders would begin to doubt and probably quit way before 120 years was up. When he was on the ark, it rained for six weeks. There was nothing but water for five months. And it was a whole year, the Bible says, before the waters completely dried up. Do you ever find yourself in a situation like that? We know what the Bible says, but sometimes due to our circumstances, we question or we doubt. Maybe for you right now, it seems as if you've been preaching about getting right with God, perhaps to a family member or a friend, and yet there's no response. And it seems like to you, you've been preaching for 120 years. Maybe you've been building your ark, doing your thing, whatever it is that God's given you to do with your life, and yet there just seems to be no end in sight to it. Maybe it just won't stop raining for you. you. You long for some sunshine in your life, but it just seems to be full of rain. Maybe you feel like you're at sea. And it doesn't matter which way you look, all you can see is grey sea with nothing, no land in sight. There's no end in sight. But you know, God hasn't promised to make life easy. He's not promised to make this life easy. And if you're not a Christian today, if you're not yet trusted in Jesus, you need to understand trusting in Jesus deals with our sin. It gives us a wonderful relationship with God and eternal life. But it doesn't mean that we suddenly become healthy, wealthy and prosperous. Following Jesus is a difficult life. For Noah, he had the choice. Would he fix his eyes on the things that he could see, the lack of rain, the scorn of his peers, the never-ending task of building the ark, or would he by faith fix his eyes upon his future in God? He could have been overcome on the ark, couldn't he, with the reality of the never-ending rain, the miles of grey ocean, the year in a smelly zoo, but these things were like momentary troubles. And the future of glory that they were achieving in him far outweighed them all for Noah. And so he fixed his eyes on the unseen and trusted his God. And I want to encourage you today to do the same. Whatever situation you might be in, whatever situation you might face in the future, to fix your eyes upon God, upon eternity, to put your faith in him even when it seems to make no sense to do so. How do we prepare for times like this? How was Noah prepared for what he went through? Noah walked with God and we need to ensure that we are walking with God. The Bible says this, so we do not give up. Our physical body is becoming older and weaker, but our spirit inside us is made new every day. We have small troubles for a while now, but they are helping us gain an eternal glory that is much greater than the troubles. We set our eyes not on what we see, but on what we cannot see. What we see will only last for a short time, but but what we cannot see will last forever. Following God 
brings a reward in heaven much greater than our problems on earth. Let me encourage you today. Keep following God even when it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm going to pray and I'm going to sing one song in closing. Let me just pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you, almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke and the world came into being, the one who created each one of us in your image to live in relationship with you. Help us this morning to trust you, to live for you, to walk with you. Help us to follow you even when it makes no sense. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray for myself, Lord, that whatever circumstances we're facing right now and will face in the future, that you will give us the strength to keep following you even when it makes no sense. Help us to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to just stand and sing one final song. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. If you're feeling weak, if this morning life is difficult, if it makes no sense to you, strength will rise, the Bible says, as we wait upon the Lord. And he gives like, uh, he gives us wings like eagles. He renews our youth. We might feel old, we might be struggling, but as we trust in Jesus, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. So we're going to stand and sing, and after this, the service is over. If you want to come and talk to me about anything I've said this morning, we would be more than delighted to chat with you afterwards. Thank you.